Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose here. We're doing another in a series of shows from ASI here in Louisville, Kentucky. It is 2019. The month is August, and we're talking with people who are making a difference throughout Indian country and beyond. Across from me are two such individuals, James and Nancy. Glad to have you both with us today. Tell us a little Thank bit you. about yourselves. So we live in Page, currently in Page, Arizona. We moved there from uh, Minnesota, but before that, we lived in Illinois. Oh, okay. And there is a connection. Why? Why I'm I'm telling you that um, we were in Illinois because we did some things there that really led up to what we're doing in Indian Country. Okay. Now this is interesting. Now when when we sat down before the show, when you mentioned you were from Page, I'm, you know, trying to put my geographical uh, uh, perspective in place, and I'm saying, now, is Page in the Navajo Nation or not? And you guys told me an interesting history. Even though I've had people on the show from that area, I didn't quite realize the history of the town of Page. James, what, uh, uh, what did you share with me earlier that uh, our listeners might not know either? Well, Page is a relatively new town, and it was part of the Navajo Nation, and it was purchased to build that town there. And so they could put the dam there on the Colorado River, the Glen Canyon Dam. Now we have Lake Powell there. So is, so is the, the dam in, in the area of Page, is that what actually created Lake Powell? It is, yes. Really? Okay. It's the first dam on the Colorado River, and that's actually what created the town because at first it was basically just for the workers that, that uh-huh. were building the dam, and then it just started building, and then once the dam was in, that gave a bridge for people to come in easily for tourism. And so that's when the town just started building, building, and now it is one of the fastest-growing tourist towns in the United States. Is it really? That's interesting. So Page is actually not formally part of the Navajo Nation. Is that safe to say, or, or is it? Purchased from the Navajo Nation. Wow, Okay. So you folks are living in Page, so you're there uh, in the heart of Indian country, if you will, even though you're n- not right on the reservation proper. What kind of things have you been doing that have been making a difference as far as the First Nation peoples in your backyard? Well, back to a little of our history. Um, when we lived in Illinois, our family owned a truck farm. Okay. So we grew all sorts of strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, and all of any vegetable that you can imagine. We had greenhouses, high tunnels. And so it started kind of as a hobby that we always loved, my husband and I, to garden. And mm-hmm. then we wanted to pass that down to our children. And so we started more as a business. We would go to farmer's markets so that our children could see... Um, you know, develop a work ethic and, mm-hmm. and just see how, how these things happen. And so um, when we moved to Arizona, of course, that love of gardening was still within us. And even though it's a desert, we started experimenting. What can we grow here? Mm-hmm. 
And so as as time went on, the ideas grew bigger. Okay. Um, I don't know if James wants to, to add anything to that, but um, we started experimenting with what grew well in the desert, how could we water it to, to be good stewards of, of the water resources, mm-hmm. and and then we started realizing we need a greenhouse because, um, you know, we, we need the plants at the right time to grow for our garden, so... Mm-hmm. That's when we we really started thinking, what can we do? And we had a, a lady who I was sharing this vision with, let's have an orchard. Let's have a, a community garden. Let's have a greenhouse on our spare lot next to us. And I was sharing this vision with this lady, and she said, how much would it cost to put in a greenhouse? And I told her, and with tears streaming down her face, she wrote a check for the amount of money that we really? needed to put up this greenhouse. So that was a few hundred dollars? It was a few thousand dollars. Okay. I figured it would be probably quite a bit. Yes. Really? So this is amazing. So you've seen the creator's hand in what you're doing. Definitely. Now, James, do I understand correctly that in addition to wanting to make a difference in Paige, helping with the people's health, helping uh, make a difference with uh, access to produce, you also have a background as a, a Christian pastor. Is that true? Well, I've been pastoring there for about five years now. Okay. And uh, this lot next to you, is that next to your home, next to the church? Both. Um, so Both. we live okay. and we, we own the whole block there. Uh-huh. So the church is on part of it and then our home. And so we just started slowly developing. It was a spare lot that was in... Um, very bad shape with, uh-huh. with all different weeds and we, we started just by weeding it and then we started saying you know the garden developing the garden and we we planted um, I think around 30 fruit and nut trees really that that do well um, in the desert uh-huh and we have blackberries we have 250 asparagus plants. Wow. And then we have the regular vegetables that you would think about, the broccoli and the squash and the corn uh-huh. and, and tomatoes and peppers and things. Wow. As well as the greenhouse. So, James, now I think a lot of us who are listening to Nancy speaking about nuts and fruits that grow well in the desert, we're wondering what those are. What kind of nut and fruit trees do you have? Well, we do have some almond trees and actually some of the other uh, we tried the pistachio, but it did not survive the winter. Oh, really? Okay. Because uh, we're just right on the edge there, of, you know, where we get some low temperatures at night. Uh-huh. But we do have some persimmon trees, apricots, and some fig trees. Oh, nice. Doing okay. Pomegranate. And pomegranate. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, a lot of people, when they think of, well... A lot of areas of the Southwest, especially where they don't get much water, uh, of course, there's areas, you know, like the San Joaquin Valley and others that are, you know, just largely agricultural. But a lot of those places haven't had much agriculture, at least recently. Um, You know, going back centuries ago when First Nation peoples were doing a lot of agricultural work, I mean, the evidence uh, that I've seen is pretty impressive that there is a lot of that land was cultivated and irrigated. So you're really kind of reclaiming, if you will, 
some of those uh, native uh, values. Exactly, and and that was part of our idea in doing this is to invite children huh. in the community to come. And so it's been a process slowly evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, our, our lot is across from the local high school there in Page and the Desert View Elementary School. And so the children a lot of times are just walking through our, our parking lot and our, our spare lot. And we also keep chickens there to help with the soil, mm. um, to fertilize and work up and eat bugs. And so we'll find kids from the school peeking through the fence at, at the chickens and interested, um, I remember one day seeing some kids all huddled around a little grow box, and I wondered what was happening, and I, I went out, and they, they had a startled look on their face, and they said, is it okay we're here? And I said, of course, we want you to come here. And one of the little girls said, well, I learned about the herb stevia, and mm. I just wanted to share and teach my other friends how to taste it and what it's like. And so that's exactly what we a space that we wanted to create for the the young people to come and see how food is grown Mm -hmm. and then also to learn how to cook it and to be able to taste it, which kind of leads into our other project, but we might not want to talk too much about that now. Well, I think we do. We want to talk about a number of things you're doing because from the little I know, James and Nancy, what you folks are doing in Page, Arizona is something that I think is inspirational to people in traditional environments and, you know, more rural communities, especially where people, you know, don't have that many options as far as, let's say, grocery stores right next door. Now, Page is a growing community. I'm sure there are grocery stores there. But uh, today in the public health community, we talk a lot about food deserts. You know, people may want to eat better, but there just isn't access to fresh produce and, and items Exactly, and and connecting with us is um, the town of Cayenta, which is 99 miles away, but that is part of my husband's um, district as a pastor. And in Cayenta, they have some of the highest food insecurities of any mm. other area in the United States. On the Navajo Nation, we only have 13 grocery stores. Wow. And so this is also something that we would like to see spreading across the Navajo Nation. In fact, in April, there was a group of students from a high school in Utah that came and planted, um, I think it was 30 fruit and nut trees on a mission site in Cayenta. Okay, nice. So basically, you're sharing what you're doing in Page in Cayenta, and you're also, are you bringing some produce over there too? Are you making that available or selling it? Yes. A little at a time, they having some... Not not a lot, but grow beds, growing uh-huh. some for ourselves, making it available to people there, and of course people we know, and so it's definitely there's a feeling that um, this is something we need, and people people like it, and at the same time, you know, with the gardening it is difficult in um, that climate, thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, both with the, I mean, if you're going to plant something, you first got to think about the water before you plant. Mm-hmm. How are we going to water this? And not only that, much of the soil there, it doesn't have all of the nutrients okay. that you would have like here in the Midwest where we've gardened before. And so certain crops will grow anyways and uh-huh. do fine. Um, corn and squash, beans typically uh-huh. do pretty good. 
um, but other things don't. Mm. And so people realize it's a challenge. It's just something we have to work with. So they do, when they see people doing it, it is inspiring. Uh They do want to do it. They do want to be a part of it. Oh, this is exciting. We have also, um, they have a flea market in Cayenta. We sent plants, herb plants, and different plants. Nice. Which um, one of our our Navajo friends, she took those um, plants to the market and she said, oh, a lot of people want more of your sage plants because that is something that they use with their... Um, Ceremonies, mut- too, as well, right? Yes. Yeah, so so we are just sending you know, plants over to the flea market for them to use there as well. I have a little funny story. Uh-huh. Um, we had a knock on our door one day, and it was the man who's now the mayor of Page. And he said, I want to invite you to come to the city hall meeting because we're actually going to honor um, what you've done Wow! Uh, on this spare lot. It used to be one of the biggest eyesores in town, and now it's it's the most beautiful. Wow. And so I said, okay. So we went to receive this certificate of beautification uh-huh, from uh-huh. the city, and we had people turning their heads and saying, um, this is Pastor Crosby. We hardly recognize him because he's not wearing overalls. So although he's a pastor, um, we really just want to do things to help our community. And and so I just thought that that was, I had to chuckle that people are saying we didn't recognize this pastor because he normally is just wearing overalls <laughs> working well, in his garden. I, I think this is so exciting because in Indian country, there are definitely mixed feelings about Christianity. I mean, a lot of what was done under the name of Christianity was anything but Christian, anything but kind, anything. Uh, uh, and that's, a, you know, we know that whole story. But I'm encouraged by people at meetings like ASI, like yourselves, where you're saying, hey, we're here to help people. We're here um, to make a difference, to, to meet people's needs. And uh, I think, you know, the, the pastor in the, uh, in the work clothes and the overalls, I like that picture, too. We have got to step away for a break. I think there's so many exciting things you're doing. I'm hoping at least one, if not both of you guys, can stay by till our next segment. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Okay, at least I've got Nancy signing up. James, I know, might have to run over to his booth, but I'm hoping you'll, you'll be uh, constrained to stay by. We're going to step away for just a couple of minutes. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose, the show, American Indian Living. We're broadcasting from... ASI, the International Convention, right here in Louisville, Kentucky. We will be back with more. Don't go away. A lot more exciting things that can make a difference for you, your family, your community. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's one 800 775 Four six seven three. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose here in Louisville, Kentucky. We are at the ASI International Meeting. It's 2019 when we're recording. The month is August. Across from me are the Crosbys, James and Nancy. They've been sharing with us their work in Page, Arizona, and the surrounding communities. They're making a difference trying to help people reconnect with traditional Native values, uh, recultivating areas that uh, some people would say um, don't really look all that exciting to cultivate. Haven't you been telling us that, James? That's right. You know, for people that have the so-called green thumb, that they like to work in the soil, there are definitely places that are easier to work than others, and you've shared with us you guys have roots in Illinois and Minnesota. Now you're in Arizona. Was it, um, well, let me ask it this way, just be frank with you. Has it ever been discouraging? Well, it has, yes. Uh-huh. So it's been a process, just learning how, how does gardening even work in this kind of climate, what things work best, and there are things we have to do differently there. What I find is fascinating is throughout many places in Indian country, they've held these three foods, uh, three, three food groups in high esteem. They often are called the three sisters, the corn, the beans, the squash. And you mentioned that uh, from a farming or agricultural perspective, these are really resilient crops that will grow in a lot of places. I, I hadn't heard that part of the story before. Is that something that's well known in agricultural circles or just a discovery you guys have made? That's kind of what it looks like to me. And uh-huh. Definitely... And a squash is something just about anybody will grow squash. Because, uh-huh. um, yeah, it does do well in the heat, mm-hmm. you know, the direct sunlight. And, and the corn's pretty resilient, too, and the beans also? Certain varieties of corn more than others. Uh-huh. Yeah. So have you had to tap into kind of native wisdom in the region and find out what types of foods traditionally were used there? Has that helped you? 
a little bit, just looking to see what other people have tried and mm-hmm. have worked and talked to some people. And so as far as choosing varieties, definitely. Yeah. Very good. Like with tomatoes, we came there with tomato varieties that worked very well in Illinois and did not do well at all there in Arizona. So we've had to try different things. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, this is great. So you're getting this practical experience. You're sharing it with your community. People are getting excited. Now, I've got to step back with you because you may not know this about me. In fact, I don't know that I've ever shared this on air. But one of the first jobs I ever had, and I'd have to scratch my head. Maybe it was even the first job I had, uh, at least you know, in a regular fashion, was as a day camp counselor. So, and I was, it was actually in the state of Illinois. So I was uh, a day camp counselor working with young kids, and I enjoyed that. Now, I've heard that you guys are doing something innovative with the day camp idea. Oh. Tell us about this. Well, well, two years ago, um, this, wasn't, this wasn't even in our radar, although I've always wanted us to focus on children. Mm-hmm. We were getting a request from parents that we don't know what our kids are going to do in the summer. They'll just be doing nothing on the streets, whatever. And I came back to my husband and said, why don't we have a day camp? And so last summer we started, and this so this year was our second summer, but how we have incorporated the gardening with this is that the children have a, a little bit of time each day out in the garden, becoming familiar with the plants, doing a little gardening, uh-huh. and then, um, or maybe harvesting. So okay. maybe it's pulling weeds, maybe it's whatever needs done that day. But they always harvest something and take it back in, and then they'll prepare something with that food that they've harvested. Oh, really? And have a recipe that they could take home. Um, it just varies what, what it might be that they create for their lunch that day mm-hmm. out of the program, the produce that they've watched growing as they're there. So, so we run our day camp for eight weeks in the summer. And so the kids come at um, eight to four mm-hmm. every day. And we don't just do gardening, but this is one of the things to show kids, um, to instill in them this love that we have of gardening and um, to make it fun. I've been told by people that work with children that one of the best ways to get kids to try new foods is to get them into the garden and growing the stuff. Have you found that, James, to be true? Definitely true. And when you pick produce right out of the garden, it's a lot better. I mean, uh-huh. if it goes from the garden right to the kitchen and then to the plate. Uh, and, I mean, I had that experience myself, vegetables like beets or broccoli. Uh-huh. never liked them at all until I grew them myself. Wow. And so, yes, they can experience that. Uh, gardening, farming, you know, people think of it as work. And, of course, day camp's supposed to be fun. Uh-huh. But for children, gardening can be fun, too. And so how it's presented, and I've had times, you know, we, we don't uh, put a lot of time to the day camp, maybe a half hour, 45 minutes for the gardening that day. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I've had times I went out there, and it's lasted two hours because they were having such a good time. And, of course, there were several different things to do, different crops that needed harvested and, you know, different things needed done with the plants, whether it be pruning or, or whatever. But uh, it can be fun as well. And, and some of the things that might not seem as much fun, I wish I, I wish I could just show a picture over the radio, uh, but we can't. That's but, tough, yeah. Um, uh, just, we had 
a, a big crop of peas earlier this summer. Okay. And they all needed shelled. And so I thought, how are we going to do this with the kids? And so a little bit of my competitiveness came out. Ah. And so we, we put peas on three different tables and, and some of the staff gathered around each table. And so we got them all excited. Let's see who can shell the biggest bowl of peas. And, and I have pictures of where one, one little girl is sitting on the top of the table, hovered over the bowl, just trying to get the peas in the bowl. And, and it was so much fun. And then we ate the peas for lunch that day and the kids uh-huh. loved it. They absolutely loved it. And they would run from table to table. Let me see how many peas are in their bowl. And, and so it was just a wonderful, um, experience. We were all bonding together plus, you know, just experiencing nature. Mm-hmm. We did it outside. We shelled outside. We picked the peas outside. So just connecting with um, each other and, and and with creation. Boy, you guys are getting me excited. You know, it's uh, it wouldn't be hard for me to head over to Page unless you told me what the temperature is right now, probably. Because <laughs> I know it can get pretty warm there in the summertime. Yes, it can. And, of course, we're recording this in August. But Let's uh, talk a little bit more about this day camp because I know there are folks listening from throughout Indian country. We, of course, have many non-native listeners as well. And there are folks saying, you know, this is a concern for parents everywhere. You know, what wholesome things can our kids do during the summer? Of course, there's day camp programs and, you know, summertime programs all over the country, all over the world, no doubt. But um, you've told us about the farming component. What other kind of things would happen during the day camp? So we do some reading and flashcards, fun learning games. Oh, okay. So that the kids are, are keeping up with their um, school, you know, before school starts, just, just keeping some literacy things going. We take field trips to different area sites that um, maybe Horseshoe Bend or Walnut Canyon down by Flagstaff, different different. Um, beautiful places. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have Lake Powell there that we talked about, and we take them swimming at least twice a week to Lake Powell. Um, fun things, as well as as the gardening component. Excellent. Now, is this something that there's a charge for? Yes, we do have a charge. Um, I think this summer we had maybe only four paying children. Mm-hmm. So what we do is for the kids that cannot afford to pay then we we try and find sponsors for those children. Oh, nice. So that they can attend. We literally, um, Dr. DeRose, we had a waiting list of children because we did not have enough staff wow. to staff this day camp. We had parents coming, grandparents and parents coming and knocking and saying, I want my children to be a part of this day camp. Do you have room for them? And, you know, it was very difficult for me to have to turn you know, some of these children away, but we just did not have all the resources that, that we needed to take more children. So someone's listening to the show right now, and uh, this will, of course, be airing after your day camp is completed for 2019, but I'm assuming that you're probably already thinking about 2020? We are, definitely. And you think you'll have a day camp? We would like to see it twice as big next year if we can get the staff to do that. Okay, so people are listening, and Maybe there's someone listening right now and they say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do in the summer. Maybe they're a, a young person. I mean, could you use the help of a, of a teenager or you need adults for staff? Or, you know, what are you looking for in terms of your needs to help your program run successfully? We could definitely use young people mm-hmm. to, to work with this. 
in that. So college-age students definitely could be a part of that. Maybe even late high school age, possibly. Okay, so late high school age perhaps, college age for sure. Now I'm gathering, listening to your budget, that you're probably not going to be able to pay them uh, thousands of dollars a week. Exactly. Be more of a volunteer position, is that safe to say? Yes, a small, a small stipend. Okay, so how would they get a hold of you if they wanted to, to be part of 2020's program? I'd love to have them call me. My number is 217-322-2516. They can just call and say they're, they're interested in our day camp program. Okay, let me get that number again. Go ahead and give it to us one more time. 217-322-2516. Okay, so you can call Nancy Crosby at area code 217-322-2516. That's right. Very good. Guys, thanks so much for sharing your passion and how you're making a difference. Thanks for having us. Thank okay. you. Okay, continued success here at ASI. we got to step away. We will be right back with more on today's edition of... American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose on today's edition of American Indian Living. 
We are going across really the world as we talk about indigenous health issues. We're going from Page, Arizona, now to Guam. And uh, some of you might be saying, Guam, I've heard of that. Just where is it? We'll fill in some of the details after I let you know who's sitting across from me. His name is Michael Robinson. He's an MD. He is the medical director for clinical services of the Guam SDA Clinic. Michael, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be with you today. Well, it's great to have you with us. And uh, you folks, um, I'll tell you, for my wife and I, we have a, a, a new appreciation for Guam. Uh, they really stuck their neck out, for those of you tuning in. Uh, uh, earlier this year, they invited uh, my wife and I out to do some health programs there on the island of Guam and on the nearby island of Palau. And uh, you guys were not only great hosts, you did a great job of coordinating community health events. So it was really a privilege to work with you. We were so glad you came and really enjoyed having you and your wife spend the time that you did. And uh, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to share that time with us. So first of all, geographically, someone's heard of Guam. They have no idea where it is. Can you help us without a map? Sure. So you head west and you'll run into Hawaii. Okay. Then you get on another plane and you head west again for seven hours. And you will arrive in Guam. It's beautiful. It's, it's a tropical paradise. It's an island. Uh, in the Pacific there, and uh, wonderful people and a uh, beautiful place to live. Well, he's not just giving you PR. He's telling you the straight uh, story. I'm an eyewitness. And uh, you have been there for some time, right? Yes. How, how long have you called Guam home? Since 1998. Wow. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're pushing 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about Guam and uh, the kind of work you're doing there. Of course, on American Indian Living, we focus on indigenous health issues. Yeah. And Guam, you have an indigenous peoples there. Yeah. Uh, is it the Chamorro? Is Correct. It? So tell us a little bit about some of the challenges they've had with really Western influences coming to their island. Absolutely. Prior to World War II, um, they really had mainly tropical illnesses mm -hmm. to deal with. Uh, the Navy did a survey right after World War II and looked at the illnesses that were there. And uh, there was really no diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure or uh, cancer. Uh, really? It was mainly yaws and malaria and dengue fever and tropical illnesses. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so since World War II is when we've had a significant change in the health of the island. So in the aftermath of World War II, there was a significant uh, United States presence, and, and with that, a lot of the, the culture and the... Uh, Shopping options yes. and food options that uh, we've grown accustomed to here in the, in the continental United States. Yeah. So what would the indigenous diet of the Chamorro people look like? Do you, do you have any idea of that? Very healthy. It mm -hmm. uh, consisted of um, a grain, and mm -hmm. typically that was a, a corn-based grain, uh, and some maybe rice if, if they were a little more wealthy. Uh -huh. um, and then they would have vegetables. Uh, and then they would have some sort of uh, a fish mm -hmm. uh, that they would eat. And uh, that would be typical of what they would eat. Then once a year, they would have a fiesta where they would you know, have um, more fatty kind of food. And, um, but that was typically not their diet. Their diet was mainly corn and, and fish and uh, uh, some vegetables. Okay. So basically, largely plant-based. But, of course, they had fish living right there in an island right. nation. So... Give me an idea today, if I were to visit a typical Chamorro home, would I find them likely eating these traditional foods, or would they be eating uh, 
other things that might look more familiar to me from the U.S. Yeah, so you'll see their traditional foods, but also other foods added to that. Uh, so rice now has become white rice. Um, that They use um, a flavoring to make it what they call red rice. Hmm. Um, then there's a lot of um, uh, meat as well. Okay. So you'll see the spam, you'll see the pork, you'll see... Um, the more fatty fish, the lobster, the oyster, the clams, uh, octopus, uh, those uh-huh. kind of things, which, which are sort of richer foods that they typically didn't eat on a regular basis. Um, a few vegetables here and there, a few fruits, but uh, that's pretty much uh, what you'll see. And then uh, a high amount of uh, Western food. You know, uh-huh. You've got your um, Kentucky Fried Chicken, your McDonald's, um, those fast foods uh, will be a very typical part of their diet. So then let's fast forward. Back, you said, at the end of World War II. We're in the 1940s. No diabetes, no high blood pressure, no cancer. Is that true today? Unfortunately not. The uh, incidence of diabetes is very significant. Um, They say undiagnosed diabetes is about 50% of the population. Um, The incidence is probably about 35% uh, of the population diagnosed. Heart disease is very common because mm-hmm. of the diabetes. Uh, high blood pressure is very common. Uh, we have an epidemic of kidney failure uh, wow. as a result of the diabetes um, and the high blood pressure combination. Uh, so it has significantly changed compared to what happened uh, before the war. So what we find in uh, many tribal communities, people are returning to more indigenous food choices, more indigenous lifestyle choices. Have you had any experience there at the Guam SDA clinic with helping people embrace more of these simpler foods, the plant-based choices, maybe some, uh, you know, uh, consumption of locally caught fish? Is this making any difference if they, they do make those kind of changes? I really feel I have an advantage when I talk to them about their grandparents. Oh, okay. So I say to them, okay, what does your grandmother eat? Uh-huh. Oh, she likes her vegetables. She likes her corn tortillas. And uh, she has her fish, and I, I said, well, how about eating like your grandmother? And a light bulb goes on. Oh, yeah, well, that's why Grandma doesn't have diabetes and high blood pressure, and you know, she doesn't come to the doctor. Mm. I should do that, you know? And, and it really works. And people say, okay, I'm going to go back to eating like, like my grandmother does, who, who lives in their house, you know? And so it's a new generation um, that is eating these foods. And so as they look at the difference between where they are in their health and where their grandmother is who lives with them, they can see the difference, and it's significant. has happened in their lifetime. Well, now that is exciting. Yeah. So basically, um, some of these changes that have happened here in the continental, continental United States over a longer period of time, where it may have been the great-grandparent or the great-great-grandparent that was following more of those in, indigenous practices in Guam, it's they're not all that far removed from right. it. Correct. Tell us, Michael, a little bit about needs there in Guam, because uh, when I was there, when my wife and I were there, we uh, we noticed, uh, in fact, we were happy to see uh, Dr. Tim Arnott and his yes. wife had joined you. Dr. Arnott has been a guest on my show uh, in the past, but, um, you know, someone might say, well, they're, they're hiring new doctors, new providers. They probably don't need much uh, much help. I mean, it's a beautiful place. There's probably breaking your door down just to to get a position there. Is that pretty much how it is? You know, we do live in paradise, but it's sometimes hard to get people to move all the way to paradise because it is in the ocean. It's far away, but it's beautiful. It's a nice place to work. 
we do have a, a, a need for healthcare providers. And okay. so we're looking for physicians to come help us and to, to be the resources for people who unfortunately have gotten sick and to need a helping hand. Uh, we need primary care providers, uh, also need specialists. Uh, mm -hmm. If someone gets really sick, uh, if the specialist is not available on Guam, we have to send them to the U.S. mainland or, or to somewhere near in Asia uh, to get that health care. So if we can have a provider come to help us in Guam, it would be significantly helpful. So tell us, someone's listening right now and they're saying, boy, this sounds like a great opportunity to make a difference. How would, um, how would someone get a hold of you or someone else who could give them information about Maybe, uh, I mean, could they even do something short-term to oh, try it absolutely. out? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Email is probably the easiest way to do that. And just email us at uh, hr at adventistclinic.com and just let them know that you're willing to do some short-term. Short-term, we can use uh, family practice, internal medicine, uh, OBGYN, ophthalmology, uh, or if you want to come for more than... A month, uh, come for a couple of years and help us out. We would love to have you. Okay. So those of you folks that are tuning in, you work for uh, Indian Health Services, you work in a native clinic, you're saying, wow, I thought we just had a hard time, you know, filling some of those roles. But there's challenges all over. And it yes. seems that some of those challenges are multiplied when you're working with indigenous peoples. I mean, a lot of, uh, I was talking with a, a physician some time ago, and we were saying, well, how, how come it's so hard to get people? Some of these, I mean, they're beautiful places. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a reservation surrounded by a lot of beautiful uh, nature. Yeah. Maybe it's, you know, on the island of Guam. And uh, someone said, well, I think the problem is there's another physician. Uh, w whether it's true or not, you can debate it. He said, you know, we, we train these physicians in these big uh, urban areas, and uh, not just the doctor but his uh, or her spouse gets used to all the amenities sure. of you know, urban living, and they may not be there, uh, you know, on the Navajo Reservation or on, in Guam. Yeah. Um, it's kind of an interesting observation, but we, uh, like I said, found it a real privilege to work with you guys. And there's nothing like a peaceful uh, home in the country or, or on an island uh -huh. you know, to help, uh, help give yourself good mental acuity and uh, live long yourself. So come and help us. No, it's a great message because many providers today, you know, we're hearing a lot about burnout. Yes. And, uh, you know, people say, you guys, I, I, I noticed some of your uh, your team had some interesting practices. One morning we were there and uh, one of your team there at the uh, SDA clinic said, well, you want to come uh, snorkeling with me? Every Friday I go snorkeling. <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah. we just went out right, uh, right off the shore pretty much yeah, and, you know, just true. walked in and See the turtles and the dolphins and the Well, we didn't quite see the stingrays. dolphins and the stingrays. They, they told us they were out there, but we saw a lot of beautiful fish. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. um, Michael, as we're winding up, you know, we've talked about the needs in Guam, but we haven't talked about something that I think is, is so very important, and that is maybe some final take-home lessons because there are folks who don't have the native roots in Guam, but they have native roots, you know, here in, um, in the U.S. Maybe they're not native, and they've just tuned into the show for the first time. They've got diabetes. You've done a lot of work with diabetes there. If you were to say maybe top three lifestyle choices people could make to improve sure. their diabetes, what, what would they be? I think for me, I would say get out and start moving. Okay. Whatever it may be, just walk, swim, garden, something every day, and, and do it consistently. Do it uh -huh, every day. Uh -huh. uh, number two is... Try to get as much oil out of your diet as possible. Okay. Get as much out. And the third thing is go plant-based. Okay. 
So when you say get the oil out of the diet, are you talking all types of oils? Are some more problematic than others? Yes, but I think the easiest thing to remember is get as much out of as as possible. Just try to avoid fried things, you know, salad dressings. Just just go as natural as possible without oil as much as possible. I know you can't do it 100%, but and we do need oil. I mean, oil is important, but try to use as little as possible. So let me see if I've got this. Exercise more, move more. Uh, get the oil out, and then what was the other point? And plant-based diet. Lots of fruits and vegetables. Okay. And as many plants as possible. So you think those three things would make a big difference? Absolutely. Have you seen it make a difference I, for your patients? I really have. And and in as little as 10 days, people get on that kind of a diet, and uh, they really significantly decrease their medications, and um, blood sugars come down very, very quickly. Fantastic. Someone has gotten inspired. They want to come out to Guam. They at least want to uh, help you for a while. Tell us again how they can get a hold of your team. Absolutely. So HR, uh, Human Resources, HR at AdventistClinic.com. Look forward to seeing you on Guam again. Hey, sounds good. (laughs) Let me write this down. HR, in case uh, we're getting motivated and can't track you down, at Adventist Clinic. That's it. HR at AdventistClinic.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Rose. We're going to step away. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't miss our final segment. We'll be right back after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are continuing dialoguing with some amazing people here at ASI 2019. We're in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we began the show talking with folks from Page, Arizona. Then we were all the way out in Guam, that island, uh, uh, talking about some of the challenges there, indigenous uh, peoples and their health challenges. And now we're coming back to the U.S., to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In front of me, Jeremy O'Neill, physician. It's great to have you with us, Jeremy. Thank you. Good to be here. Jeremy, you are not just a physician. You are a specialist in a discipline that people throughout Indian country have heard a lot about. You are a nephrologist, a kidney specialist. Why does that resonate with people in Indian country? Well, um, what little I know about uh, the American Indian population, Native Americans, uh, they do suffer with diabetes and kidney disease. I know that these two things are wildly prevalent in those populations, almost no matter where you go in the Native American population. Uh, from south to north, west. It's a huge problem, yes. and, uh, of course, it doesn't limit itself to Native Americans. No. Uh, it seems like wherever I travel, I'm seeing new dialysis centers going up. Right. It's a sad thing. It's a very preventable disease process. Um, you know, we like to try to compartmentalize diseases, mm-hmm. uh, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, heart, lung disease, vascular disease of any kind, stroke risk. Um I feel that they're all very linked mm. um, and, and, and really in all intensity and purposes, um, especially when you talk about diseases that are affected by the vasculature. Okay. Okay. And if you think about diabetes, uh, which is probably one of the biggest risk factors for kidney disease mm-hmm. in general, the CKD population at large, but especially ESRD, those with failing kidneys, those who now need, uh, unfortunately, a life support now, you, you're throwing out, you know, for a physician yeah, so here, you know, we know these abbreviations. Yeah, sure. So CKD, what yeah, is that? Chronic kidney disease. Chronic so kidney that's where disease. you got damage to the kidneys okay. to some degree or another. And this then what's... be very mild to uh-huh. very severe. And obviously, anyone who's been told they have chronic kidney disease may have even heard about stages of kidney disease, okay. which I won't go into. But obviously, the final stage is something called end-stage renal disease or end-stage kidney disease where someone then needs life support to maintain life um, by replacing their kidney function with a machine. Okay. So either they're going to be on that dialysis machine or doing peritoneal dialysis or something to take the place of the kidney. that's right. So we're talking about risk factors, things that can set you on that path to losing kidney function. Diabetes is high on that list. Right. Um, I found it interesting in Indian country, and many of my listeners have heard me talk about this. You may be aware I wrote a book a few years ago, co-authored a book called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. And uh, one of my first kind of wake-up calls is shortly after that book had come out, I was speaking in a tribal setting, at tribal health workers, and we were talking about the importance of high blood pressure and how that related to kidney function. And one yeah. of the community health workers said, you know, I just was in someone's home, and they were saying, how could this be? How could I have kidney failure? I don't have diabetes. Right. So they had made that connection with the risk factor of diabetes, but Correct. they had uncontrolled high blood pressure. 
Help us connect those dots. Why is that combination so bad, the high blood pressure and the diabetes? Yeah, and you find them together so much of the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, have a high blood pressure. Uh, again, I think it goes back to the, the blood vessel health, mm -hmm. um, things that uh, affect or cause plaque buildup in the blood vessels, things that cause stiffening of the arteries, including the heart and heart muscle itself. Okay. Um, these things are going to be throughout the body. Think about it. No, no, no organ is, is without its blood supply, correct? Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm, it, it requires a blood flow to maintain viability in mm -hmm. life. Um, high blood pressure is the end result of vascular damage for the most part with some rare you know, instances. Uh, and diabetes is the same thing. It is a blood vessel disease. I tell my patients it's a blood vessel disease. Mm. It's damage to the blood vessels in the body. And when those and, and little the kidney is a modified blood vessel. Okay. It okay. is essentially a large modified blood vessel that way. And so when those blood vessels are damaged, not only does the kidney function suffer, but the eyes can suffer, the, eyes. the, the nerves, right. the, the heart, like you mentioned. Right. Most people, when they go to the nephrologist, they're going to walk away if they have, you know, blood pressure issues, or even if they don't, they may be put on new blood pressure medications. The nephrologist is, you know, looking at other you know, balancing other medications. Historically, people, at least patients that I've seen, have not come to me saying the nephrologist talked with me about changing my lifestyle. Right. Are there any things that a person can do? Maybe they have early chronic kidney disease. Is there anything they can change? Or is it basically they just got to take these pills and try to take them right and hope no, for the I best? Think, I, I think that is the... That is the fallacy of the medical uh, degree that mm. I obtained is, is we were taught pharmaceutical medicine, obviously, that this is how we're going to treat people. People will do what they do, and, and there's really no way to fix it. We give them a, a, a pill. I would tell my patients, you know, pills are patches. Mm. Medications are patches, and, and they're necessary for a time. I mean, somebody can't just get off the medication abruptly. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that will lead to very bad consequences right, initially. Right. Um, but they don't fix the problem. They don't change the underlying problem. And that really has to come through changing the person. Mm -hmm. um, and that's changing diet and lifestyle. Um, obviously, we can bring a lot more into that from other aspects of how you get there. Because many people's diet and lifestyle is based off of circumstances in life, mm -hmm. correct? Where mm -hmm. they live, where they grew up. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I think that the real fix is to change from the inside out. I tell people, you know, it's like a, a, a sink that's it's stopped up. It's overflowing onto the floor. Well, you've got a couple options. You've got to mop in a bucket, and you can go start mopping the floor. Well, that's your medications. Mm -hmm. It keeps things at bay. It makes it makes things, but things are still wet and water still pouring out. Or you can reach up and turn off the sink and okay. stop the drain. And that's changing your life. That's changing your lifestyle, how you eat, how you live. And, of course, going back to how that happens I think we can go into a lot of spiritual context and a lot mm. of uh, how, how do you get your, the help to overcome and do those things. Um, a lot of hows in that uh, is a whole different topic. Now, my only regret is that I've got you for the last segment of this show, and the clock is indicating that we only have a few minutes. Oh. And, uh, but here, so here's the deal. Um, kidney specialist, I'm sitting yeah. across from you. A lot of people would love to know from a nephrologist who realizes that drugs are not the solution. They, they can help, like you said, 
but if we could make some lifestyle changes, maybe far better. What kind of lifestyle changes could my listeners make that would either help them stay away from the nephrologist <laughs> or uh, maybe see him or her less? Uh, if I had to say one thing, whole foods, plant-based diet. And what that means is, is unprocessed, hmm. as God intended it, uh, not stripped of nutrients. Um, that is probably the one thing we can all do to maintain our health if we're already healthy, to regress disease. Um, you can actually see vascular disease. Again, going back to this vascular picture, mm -hmm. you can see vascular disease regression on a whole foods plant-based diet. And that means, guess what? You can fix even the kidneys if it's early enough in the process. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've had patients... That have taken this to heart. Uh huh. Um, I can't. I can't give them in large numbers, but uh -huh. the ones who have, their protein spilling in their urine, which is another sign of kidney damage, uh -huh. goes away. They stop the progression dead in its tracks, and they and they live the rest of their lives with some chronic damage, but no longer damaging the kidneys further. So make it real plain. You, you're talking about whole foods, plant based. That what were these people eating? Oh, they were eating. You know. You know, the traditional stuff. I'm in the Louisiana. Lots of fried foods, uh, lots of fried seafoods, fried oysters, fried shrimp, uh, lots of meat, steak, you know, uh, very few vegetables. So no more of uh, that? No more of that. Okay, so, so now what are they eating? What are so they eating? Vegetables. Like what? A whole vegetable. Like, okay, take, take out of the garden. Zucchinis, uh -huh. carrots, uh, you know, uh, uh, are great. People that want to make potatoes a very uh, bad thing. In their, in their whole form, they've got a lot of fiber, tons of nutrients, tons of minerals, are fantastic, even for diabetics. You want to know what I'm, you know what I'm finding fascinating? What's that? We're ending this show just where we started. We started with people in Page, Arizona saying, Native people, everybody, we got to get out in the garden and uh, getting our kids out in the garden. Right. Then we had someone from Guam telling us the Chamorro people, indigenous people there in Guam, if they start eating more of these plant foods, reverses their diabetes. You're yeah. telling us the same thing as I'm nephrologists. You, the same thing you as guys nephrologist. weren't all talking before the show, no, huh? No, not at all. Wow. Dr. O'Neill, any final words of wisdom as we wind up the show? Yes. I mean, if I was to say one thing, it's definitely get out and uh, into the garden or into the produce aisle of your grocery store. That may okay. be a big step first to try and get as many whole food, plant-based items in your diet as possible. One meal a day at least, make it a whole foods, plant-based diet. That's a start, and keep progressing from there. Powerful stuff. Dr. O'Neill, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show has uh, helped you reconnect with those uh, Native values that uh, your family taught you. If you're not Native, hopefully you've caught the vision. For all of us at American Indian Living, we're wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.